part because in Mansfield Park she has her, one of her young heroines is as close to Christ as any woman, practically any woman that I know in the literature. Um, it's a sober work. It's it's not a it's not a popular work of Jane Austen, but to me it's spiritually far more profound than Pride and Prejudice. But I thought we'd do Pride and Prejudice because it really is delightful, and it's a it's a serious it's serious it's a serious look at at um, marriages and family life. So, for anybody who wants to pick that up, we'll when we come back, I'll get in touch with you in a month and see what your how you what your thoughts are then, okay? Um, okay. Um, the book of Revelation. On a personal note, and I, I don't think I can say this strongly enough, um, you know my sentiments about Matthew and, and the Gospel of John. Matthew was no big surprise to me. John was. I, I, when you put all of the parables and all the teaching that Christ does in Matthew, he's just teaching his disciples again and again and again and again. When you get to John, we enter a different world because in that world, John's focusing on those moments. I think there's only seven or eight of them. Matthew is full of parables and scenes with Christ interacting with people and the religious leaders and the disciples. That's not so in John. We've got about seven or eight episodes, that's all, and in every one of them, except for one, I think, every one of, every one of them, Christ is giving, playing a variation on I am of the Father. I am, I am, I am. In me you see him, in him you see me. He's making it clear that everything he does reveals the Father working in time through him. So there's no way the Jews could have not known the Father. Because you know that was a great love. They didn't know a Christ. They were waiting for a Messiah, but they knew um, Yahweh, the Father. Christ is saying again and again to the Jews and everybody, um, if you knew the Father, you'd know me. Um, if you hate me, you don't love the Father. So over and over and over again, he does everything he can to show the Father and his workings, his love, his mercy, his justice. It was an amazing read for me, and I felt the same way with Revelation. When I was done, here were a couple of my responses. They're, these are personal, I know, but I was blown away, and um, I had a couple of realizations. One is that I came away fully believing that I don't think we can read the Bible well without reading Revelation as a whole. And you know in our readings we get all these works broken down. So nobody's going to get Revelation as a whole. And I'm trusting that most of you found it difficult. Suzanne and I did. Maybe some of you didn't. But it was not an easy read. In some ways, it's overwhelming trying to put all those symbols together. But it seems to me you cannot come out of that book w without getting a clear picture of final ends and um, the grave danger all of us face in taking those final ends lightly because they're starkly put before us again and again and again and again. So um, that's a dark reading, and it seems to me if we finish the Bible with Revelation and cast back that light on the Gospels, it gives a different meaning to the, to the Gospels, particularly Christ's condemnations and his mercy, both. To take either of those out, or, or um, not to have the way they're reinforced by 
the book of Revelation, it seems to me, is to, I'm not sure that we can say we read those Gospels well. Another was, when I read Revelation, I was stunned to, to realize how much Revelation is with Dante. I mean, this may not mean a lot to you guys, but you know from our work in Dante, Francis wanted the Catholic Church. He asked everybody in the church to read Dante. He didn't say read the Bible. He said read Dante. One of the amazing things about Dante is that you know from our work on it that everything he does is set against final ends. Everybody in hell is there finally. Everybody in paradise is there finally. Everybody on the way to, in purgatory is on the way to heaven. He, it's an eschatological work. He's dealing with final ends. And yet, every scene he renders is in earthly terms. And I want to stop in that because I want to underscore the importance of this. Dante could not have done that without St. Thomas and Aristotle. Because Aristotle and Thomas both bring final ends into the world. If you look at Thomas's discourse on virtues or love or any of them, he's relating us to the world as it is, concretely. Take out Thomas and Aristotle and we're left in a platonic world of abstractions. And you know that one of my gravest concerns is that I believe that the modern world lives in abstractions. It does not suffer concrete physical things. We are self-righteous, we're platonic in that way. We live in abstractions, we make judgments there, but suffering the world concretely, picking up a cross there with Christ, that's another order. Dante did that. He could not have done that without the book of Revelation. And I, and I hope to make that a little bit clear as we get into it in a minute. But I just want to underscore that. The book of Revelation closes the Bible. We're left with final ends. And if we read it together, it seems to me we can't come out of it without being a little bit frightened. And I remember telling you that story of, a, of an exchange I had with a fellow graduate student when we were doing Dante. We were sitting up in the graduate lounge, and he, we were both reading Dante. He was reading, and he said he was becoming very fearful for people in his family. Because he was seeing what happens to people, what, what their actions lead them to. Because Dante leaves us no confusion. We see every sin that can be seen in hell. The horror, the, gro the grotesqueness of it, the falseness of it, the stupidity of it. Um, I, Dante could not have done any of that without the book of Revelation and I think without St. Thomas and Aristotle. So there's a lot to be said for this work. Um, it, it's important to see that it ends the Bible. Um, it's, a, it's a long account of catastrophes, tribulations, trials, but it ends on a joy with Christ's victory and a call at the end to come, the bride or the groom calling, come, and the bridegroom saying, or the bride saying, come, come. Uh, so it's an amazing work. Um, <coughs> we talked about um, the various ways in which people approach it. Um, Fred's comments last week were, were right to the point. Um, we, it's, it's, there's a tendency to read the, the gospel, I think, largely in Protestant terms today, but we can say that there's a number of um, more established ways of reading it. Um, people can read it as um, dealing with events that have already happened. Some people reading it um, as events that are going to happen. I really believe um, that those are two extremes. 
<coughs> they're based in realities in the book. They're they're faithful to some things. I, I personally believe that it's more accurate to read um, um, Revelation in in light of all things past, future, from final ends. That's Dante. That's Boethian. That's I think it's John. Because remember, from all of the reading we've done, for God there is no past or future. There's only a present. In Revelation, we're, we're, we're given events that seem to allude to or suggest events that have already taken place, particularly the destruction of Jerusalem, or the captivity, but particularly the destruction of Jerusalem. It's quite clear on the coming of Christ, um, the effect that he had on the world through his death and resurrection, that he answered all sins and, and um, defeated Satan by that act. And it looks forward to something to come, the second coming. Um, so um, what John gives us is um, all history from the perspective of final ends. And I, th I, th I just a word of caution, be careful when you plug in because some people will just make it the past and some people will make it the future. I, I think it's a richer, deeper vision, that it's all there um, and we have to allow that definite things did happen in the past and definite things will take place in the future, but its final ends, it, it's this world seen from the perspective, perspective of final ends. Um, one, one last word on um, on um, um, an exegetical principle. Exegesis means a principle of, for interpretation. You know from our work on literature that according to the middle, medieval mind, it, wouldn't be, it would not be true for our mind today. That, that way of reading doesn't exist. But for the medieval mind, St. Thomas, Aristotle, everybody with a classical grasp of reality would say that all reality is multi-leveled. And one of the ways in which they showed that, that multi-faceted nature of reality was to say that there were four levels, the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, the anagogical. The literal, it's what's happening, we're all together, a storm's passing. Allegorical has to do from old to new, that in each moment we're either reverting back to old cells or moving on in the process of conversions, always. We're, we're, either we're growing in Christ or not. The um, tropological is moral, what we ought to do, are we doing what we should do? Um, we can go wrong in two ways. We can ignore it, we can get self-righteous. The Jews did that all the time. The religious leaders did that all the time. Lots of Christians can get very self-righteous. Um, are we really with Christ? And anagogically, are we, are we looking at our life in terms of final ends, in terms of eternity? The anagogical was that level that sh revealed the eternal working in the now. We all live in a materialistic world. The word that Chesterton used was monist, monism. It's one thing. Most people in our world believe that matter is everything. There's nothing outside of matter. There is no other world. There's no kingdom. There's no heaven. All things are defined by matter. That's it. There's nothing outside of it. 
um, we believe that matter's real, the body's real. We, um, we have the support of Christ who took on a body. I mean, if, if God would take on a body, how much more do we need to affirm the role of our body in our lives? Christ is not platonic. He descended into a body and suffered. And he asked us to do the same. So we know that the, the material world is real. Christ affirmed it. One of the beauties of the Paradiso and if you remember our classes on it, I mean, one of the things that I tried to make a point of doing is to, is to take time with each one of those planets because it was a way of showing the glory of Christ. He was nowhere present until two-thirds of the way up the Paradiso with Beatrice. But the whole point was, he made that all. He was the Word. He was present everywhere in creation. We kept seeing that again and again and again. Every one of the episodes of the Paradiso suggests a form giver, the Word, who's visible in his creation. So the last thing we could do is say, Jesus Christ, my Savior. You'd have to say, um, I, I don't know how to find the words. This is Christ. He's everywhere. He made it all. Nature is not fouled. It's a glory. The human body is a is a glory. It's a tribute to God that he would have made something like this in his image, and Christ thought well enough of it to enter our bodies. So, um, an exe exegetical principle is just a way of interpreting things. You know that when you read um, Revelation, you get all these numbers, seven, a third, um, um, 12 hours in the day, 12, 144,000, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Oh, four. We go on and on and on. Um, I suggested last time that it's important to, to take the, the literal level absolutely seriously. 7-7. Seven, seven. I read a, um, a reflection on it where the, it was a Protestant minister, I think, saying we can't take the Bible too literally. <laughs> We have to take it literally. Seven is not six. It's not less than seven, and it's not eight. Seven is seven. We can't make it something it's not. We have to take it literally. But it's really important to see that every one of those literal numbers suggests something else. So seven means completeness. To send the letter to those seven churches, I think, is... Um, is John's way or the way of the revelation or revealing that that's wherever light, wherever Christ's light is set, that spirit is going. 144,000, when Suzanne was reading it, she um, came away from reading it saying she really loved that passage where it said that the, um, the first fruits would be 144,000. She always took that as a definite number, which meant heaven was closed up pretty soon. Whereas 144,000 symbolizes a vast indefinite number. But one of the things I think is important for us when we think about, or one-third, you know, over and over, one of the angels destroyed one-third of the population, another a third, another a third, another a third. Why a third? Why? <coughs> um, I'll come back to, and leave time for questions in just a second, but one of the things that I can't help but question at that point is, is that an inversion of the Trinity, the perfect Trinity? It's, it's less than, but reflecting that. Because every one of these numbers, 
10, 7, 12, all of them suggest other things, but they all suggest a limit imposed by God that there's nothing that he does that doesn't have a completeness to it. If, if he does anything, he orders things. He puts things in order. He's bringing goodness out of evil. He's pointing us towards something. There's always something unfolding. He's bringing us to something. And whatever he's doing, it's not going to be messy. There's going to be a completeness to everything he does. That's one of the beauties of the Divine Comedy and showing God's order and what he's doing in, in hell, purgatory, and heaven. So when we read, it's important to see that we're given a view of final things. Everything is symbolic. And yet it all has some reference point to actual history. One of the beauties of the opening in the seven letters, or the, um, what the angels send to the um, seven cities, is that it makes it clear that um, everything that's being done is rooted in history. The seven cities are named. They're actual historical cities. It seems to me what, what God is revealing to John, the revelation is, that each of those cities is a real city, but we get the whole range of what's going on between a city that's largely good and cities that um, um, fall off in gradations in the way they're following Christ. So in some sense, they represent the whole spectrum of what exists all over the world. Um, so um, what I'd like to do tonight is pick up in the middle of um, Revelation where we left off and quickly go through. I'd, I'd like to focus on the, the sections that deal with the war in heaven, where the beasts come in, because I think what happens then is particularly telling, and it will, I think it'll help us move Revelation to its end. But, but let me stop here. Any questions or comments or suggestions or about any of this or any lights of your own? Because there's a lot that's obscure here. Fred, you have a, you go ahead, yeah. Just a thought to share. Um, I spend a lot of time with Revelation, and it's a, it's a, it's a tough read, but I'm, you know, kind of going back to our work in the Gospel of John, I've, I've always felt that, you know, I don't know, for, for people who used to watch the old Dragnet series, you know, and the, the famous line was just the facts, fam. I, I just always felt like the synoptic gospels were just kind of like just the facts, you know, here's, here's what happened. But I always felt like the gospel of John took us to another level, another eschatological yeah. level. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in the discussion of, you know, Jesus being the word and, you know, the word was always with us. And I, I'm absolutely convinced that John wrote Revelation. And to me, you mean the, the disciple John? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, the Revelation is almost a, and I know this is going to sound kind of strange, but it's almost a book of hope for the faithful. And and the reason the reason I say that is, you know, that if you go back and you look at all the things that people have to say about Revelation, 
there's a lot of discussion about the symbolism, you know, on the sevens, seven churches, the seven bishops, the seven archangels, you know, one third of the population wiped out and then another third of the population wiped out and the seven angels, which, which, you know, one would assume are the archangels releasing the seven bowls. But, but in the end, if you, if you look at it and you look at it from, from a past, present and future standpoint of view, um, to me, it's, it's, it's a, it's a book for the ages. I mean, you know, 70, 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed in, in the nineties AD and Nero's rule. And I forget the name of the, the Caesar after him. Um, there's a great deal of persecution that took place at, at that point in time. The so, you know, the, you know, the kind of the deadness of, you know, the, the Middle Ages, the Civil Wars, World War One, World War Two. I, I think what Revelation is trying to say is, you know, you're going to see a lot of angst over time, but it's, it's, it's the strength to the faithful that eventually God will win. Christ will return and justice will be served. And if you can stay the course, you know, continue to align yourself with the with the still point, with you know, with the fundamental beliefs that, that Christ laid for us, you're gonna be okay. You're not gonna feel like it sometimes because there's gonna be like you look at what's going on in the world today. I mean you could you could easily go crawl in a corner somewhere and assume the fetal position and never come out again. But if you if you truly believe, and I'm I'm with Mark on this one, I mean you, you gotta you gotta read the Bible and not not put your own thoughts and input into it. You just gotta if if it truly is the still point, you've gotta believe what you read and and live by it. And I just feel like that the book of Revelation was John's final effort to tell us you know, it's going to get ugly, but if you stick to the faith, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Anyway, I just, yeah. I just thought I'd share that. Yeah. Thanks. After years of study on them, on, on what's a very complicated book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that. I mean, I want to just offer a either a qualification or I, I'm not sure that this is a disagreement, but it's an important point. Um, the the revelation. I mean, we we would get this anyway from the gospels, but not f in a final form the way we do in Revelation. Um, it's important to see in Revelation that the victory's already won. It isn't that Christ will win or God will win. What Revelation makes clear, adamantly, firmly, clearly, is God is already won. I want to. I really want to force. I mean, I want to stress this because. Revelation is a, is a view from final ends. There's, there's no doubt right now about the outcome. None. Christ has already won. What's in doubt is whether people will take it seriously and, and in Fred's words, stay the course. Because it's all, I mean, now they have a reason for fighting. But it seems to me one of the things you come out of Revelation saying is, there's a real, if, if, you, if you slip through the Gospels in any way, and you play loose with that because lots of people say Christ is going to be forgiving. He's not condemning. He's a buddy. He chums up. 
I don't think you can come out of Revelation saying that because we see final ends just the way we do in Dante. God's already won. There is no doubt about that. It can't be in doubt. Nobody can overcome God. The real question is, having seen this, in fact, that's the way it ends. We'll get there at the end because that's what the angel says at the end. Let them continue to do what they do, the evil, the good. They've got a choice to make. The question is, will will they take these warnings seriously? Will they hear the note of hope? Will they see that there's real consequences to what they're doing? Because they're laid out pretty starkly. Um, Let's go to Revelation. Um, By the way, I just want to raise this question, and I don't know if it's a reading. I I know in uh, Barron's interpretation of of, um, Revelation, one of the sections, he speaks about the angels in the beginning as bishops. And Fred used the word archangels and, you know, angels. And um, I, I'm sure that's an, uh, an interpretation worth thinking about. I'm not sure that we can do that. Um, I've got a, a warning, one warning, book, one caution that I wanted to make from the beginning. Um, they're angels that sent. So are we to see these as bishops? I'm, I'm throwing this out as a question. Are we to see these angels as bishops and other angels as archangels? I don't, I don't find evidence, but I'm sure there's warrant for that. Are they bishops overseeing their churches, or are these angels, and is this an image of the inspiration of the, man, of the Spirit working through people in the congregations? Because repeatedly, at least, in, and I've got a Catholic book, and even, I know that there are different variations and different readings or translations of um, in the Catholic Church but I don't have archangels or bishops or you know that is this the work of the Spirit because it so often says the Spirit sends these are these ministering angels who oversee who inspire the congregations the bishops in a hierarchy I, I don't know but I think it's it's worth at least entertaining that question um, I've got one warning and then a, and something I forgot to tell you at the end that I don't want to forget right now. Um, one of the other tendencies in the modern world that I've come across in just in looking at some of the literature on Revelation is that there is an increasing number of people who approach Revelation with this sort of, um, um, it's not a caveat, but a, but a ground, a, a justification that the modern world has uncovered, in its scholarship, it's uncovered this apocalyptic tradition, the literature of the apocalypse. It's more well-known. Apocalyptic stories are more part of our culture. We get them in movies all the time. Mad Max, the book of Eli, you know, with Denzel White. I mean, apocalyptic films and literature is a massive part of our culture. Um... But very often people approach it in this spirit that there's all this apocalyptic literature and we should read it in that, we should read Revelation in that light. I just would like to put out a caution. My concern is that if we do that and we, and, or the other option is to look at it in terms of genres, that there's a danger in approaching it as literature. It's got a literary form. It's telling stories. But it's prophetic, and it seems to me there's a danger in inviting people to see it in terms of those other traditions because it can make them, it can be reductive, it can, it can have a debunking effect. 
Um, it's I've heard people talk about um, cautioning readers not to take what's being said too literally because there's a lot of there's a lot of ugly violent images you know and uh, there's a lot of catastrophes I think it's important to remember that this is a work of prophecy and we whatever affinities it has with literature or other works it's important to see it's a it's a prophetic work it has to be read that way whatever difficulties it presents to us last thing I forgot to mention this I'm starting up a class tomorrow I was hoping I'd see Karen tonight because she expressed some interest in starting up a class at C's where, in which we're doing um, John Paul's Fide Orazio, which I think is one of the most daring encyclicals in the 20th century, and Benedict's Regensburg Address. In both of those, you've got popes making a call to recover reason so that faith and reason go together. I, I don't want to go into it more than that, but I'm going to send you my notes to those classes and just for, for your reading, those of you who want to, because it's, I think it's one of the dangers of our wor modern world to, to live at, at two extremes and not bring those two things together, which is one of the marks of our faith. Let's look at Revelation. Um, I want to go to chapter... Um, sorry, I want to get to the two beasts as quickly as I can. Um, but before I do, um, I want to try to prepare for it. A couple of notes about the sevens, the repetition of the seven. You know that there are seven um, seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Um, we could spend a whole evening talking about those. Um, seven heads. Sorry, Doc? Seven heads. Seven heads, yeah. Um, let me just make a quick suggestion and then make an opening for anybody who wants to add anything because I'm glad to have any of you, um, particularly you, Fred, if you've done a lot of studying in this book. Um, one of the things to note um, about the seven, what happens with them is that um, in the first ones, when the seals are sent out, the seven seals, um, in the first four of those, we've got a rider and a white horse, a rider and a red horse, a rider and a black horse, a pale horse. You've got each of them imaging an authority but none of them is acting on that authority. They're not doing anything. We've got an image of the power vested in them. A white horse carrying, or a rider carrying something. A, a red horse takes away peace. Rider on the black horse holds a pair of scales. So each one of them is an image of something going on, but it's a little bit different from the three that followed because things actually happen. Um, Martyrs are wait, um, told to wait until their servants are killed. Earthquakes turn, um, earthquakes occur. The sun turns black. Things like that. Silence fills heaven for half an hour. Whereas in the seven trumpets, which, which I think can be taken as God's power, actually affecting something. It's not a seal being opened. It's, it's, it's exercising a power, doing something. You got hellfire and blood released, burning mountains, wormwood, a fallen star. Um, turns a third of the water bitter, things like that. 
Um, the seven bowls um, I take, I mean, I'm glad to hear your minds on this. To me, it's, it's one of those um, images of inversion. Repeatedly, there are allusions to the wine of God's wrath, that people will drink the wine of his God's wrath. The wine of his glory, I'm taking it as the Eucharist, the, it's the son offering himself in his own blood. So the bowls, to me, are an inversion of that turned into a destructive fire um, because of the failings of the world. Um, and that'll take us to the, the three woes that I want to get to in Book 8. But let me stop there. If any of you have any thoughts about those images of the seven seals or the seven trumpets or the seven bowls, um, Fred, go ahead. You, um, well, I, I, you know, it's just my input, but I, I've read the Ignatius Bible on Revelation, and I've also read Barron's take on Revelation. And there are a lot of angels that, that come up, and what, what I gathered from that was when he, in the early part, when he's talking about the seven churches and the seven angels, those are the bishops of the seven churches. You're, not ta you're talking about Ignatius or Barron now? Well, you know, it's more Ignatius than Barron, I think. Um, and then later when he talks about the seven angels and the seven seals, the interpretation there is that they are the seven archangels. And he actually references the different places in the Bible where those seven archangels are identified. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's 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 up to interpretation for anyone, really. But just for the purpose of sharing, that's kind of where I was coming from early on, is that the original seven angels kind of sound like the bishops of the churches because, you know, Maybe there's some issues there that that Christ has, but in the in in the seven seals and the angels that release those seven seals and the seventh angel of the seventh seal that releases the bowls, um, the implication is that, that they are probably the seven archangels yeah. or whatever it's worth. Do you have a thought on the bowls themselves, or the image of the bowls, or the image of the trumpets? Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard. I mean, you, you've got the, you've got the three woes and I think the third woe is the seven, the seven bowls. And, and I guess in the, in the end, you know, trying not to read too much into all of that, it's just really, it's each one is, is, is complete if you will. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very profound in its ultimate effect. And I, and I just got the feeling that, that seven in that case was, was the interpretation of the ultimate completion. Um, that there, there was really nowhere else to go after that. I mean, it was, you know, in, in most of those cases, the, the total destruction of whatever, whatever bowl it, it was. Um, you know, other than that, I, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, get anything out of all of the readings that, that I had other yeah. than, yeah. you know, how, how profound each one of those was. And, and to me, 
it ultimately led to the end, which kind of reminded me of the Eucharistic moment at the church where, you know, heaven and earth comes together for worship. Mm -hmm. And to me, that, that final end was heaven and earth coming together in the glory of God. And to me, that's why for my interpretation of all that after all these years of trying to figure it all out is that is the ultimate grace, the ultimate hope, the ultimate reality, reality for people of, of true, true faith that, you know, hang in there because in the end, you know, justice, justice will be done. Yeah. Yeah. With a great mercy too. Um, Where's I gonna go? Um, did you want something done? Let's go. Let's go to. Wait before we. Just to try to hold things together. Um, remember when the when the um, when the here I'll read it. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. So it's Christ. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, I'm, I'm trusting, I'm, and I'm guessing here, along with maybe all of you, that I take the four living creatures to be those four living creatures along with the 24 around the throne, that is the four gospel writers. But there's the four angels set on all the corners. I think this is the, the, the four gospel. But um, one of the four creatures said, as with a voice of thunder, come, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we've got an image of this power release. But it comes from the Lamb opening one of the seven seals, and one of the four voices giving it its authority, and it sends it out. Every one of those, if I remember correctly, certainly the first four, are sent out with a come. Okay, come, and I saw, and behold, a come for each of them. That's going to be echoed at the end when the, the lamb or the bridegroom says come and the bride says come too. But it, just hold on to that that word because it, it's important through the whole thing. In the eighth, in the eighth, God bless, sorry. Um, I want to get to the quote where it says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, if anybody can help me right now, the first whoa. Um, is it nine? My goodness. Can anybody help me here where the wool? Oh, here. Yeah, it is. It's on 813. I think the three woes, aren't they the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet? No, well, here. Yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. Releases in, the seven bowls. On eight, in chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was the silence for a time. Just go down a few lines. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. The, the trumpets began to sound. Then I looked and heard an, e an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew. That is, that's one of the images of the four Gospels. Remember an ox, an eagle, a man. Um, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth. There's three woes. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth at the blast of the... 
other trumpets which the three angels are about to blow. Fifth angel begins to blow. He will say on in Revelation 11, 13, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the, um, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. So he's just described two of the three woes that follow from that quote. Um, the second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is when the seventh angel um, uh, blew his trumpet. And it's at that point that we get an image of Mary, or the woman, on twelve, and a grave portent appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed in the sun with a moon under her feet. On her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was with child. She cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery, and another portent appeared in heaven. This calls forth a dragon, and it's at that point that we've got um, the war in heaven with Michael fighting and the two beasts coming. That'll all end um, in 18, um, when Babylon is described as being defeated. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor, and he called out with mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place. Um, um, it's been defeated. <coughs> um, if you go down a few lines, this is 18, 7 or so. Um, um, it's describing um, defeating the harlot. Um, render her, she is, herself is rendered, repay her double for her deeds, makes a double draught for her, as she glorified herself and played the wanton, so give her a like measure, since in her heart she says, a queen I sit, I am no widow, mourning I shall never see, so shall her plagues come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she shall be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Um, going over um, about line 16, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen. That I mean, most people take that as Jerusalem, but you could take it as Babylon, um, or I mean as Rome. You could take it as Babylon, other cities. One hour this wealth has been laid waste. All shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out. This is what Christ felt when he contemplated the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, he wept when he imagined what was going to happen. Rejoice over her, O heaven, O saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a um, great millstone. He throws it into the sea. So shall Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more. Um, 19, after this I heard what seemed to be a multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth. We know that the devil will be um, sent under and he will be kept there, locked up for a thousand years, and he'll be released for a short time for wars to continue again and then be finally defeated. So from this vision we know God has triumphed, will triumph, but he's left us with 
these problems. It's at this point in 21 that we're given that description of the new city coming down, which stands in contrast to the cities that we um, that have just been described. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first had passed away. Um, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. <coughs> this is when heaven and earth come together. Um, it is done. I am the, um, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. To the thirsty or I'll give water. This is Christ taking glory in his defeat of um, the evil powers. And, and you know that it will move us towards the end. And I want to wait till we get there. Before we get there, I want to go back to this passage where the two beasts arise because they're the ones that the world has most to confront. Um, they're going to be defeated by Christ and the angels. We know that there's going to be a period of a thousand years when the devil will be locked up, but wars and evil will continue for a time. Tribulations will go on. But here I want to take a minute because, um, because it seems to me what we're being shown here is just rich with implication. So can you turn to 13 for a second? I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its um, horns and um, blaspheming name upon its heads, blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his thrones and great authority. It's associated with 7 and 10. Hold on to that just for a second. I want to try to put some things together and then leave you with some questions. Shortly after the, um, the arising of this beast is a description of another. In 1311, then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds mortal wound was healed. It works great signs even making fire come down from heaven. By the signs which it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwell on the earth bidding them to make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, go down a few lines to 14. Then I looked and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his forehead. Um, go down a few lines. No, it's really interesting that a song is sung now Never be heard before. That's really interesting because we've given hymns of heaven and heaven-like poems, but this is a song no one's ever heard before. They sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women... For they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are spotless. And I saw another angel. He said with a um, loud cry, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth the sea foundations. 
Another angel comes, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Another angel comes. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Um, there's a call for endurance for the saints, those who keep the commandments. He hears another voice, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. From that point on, anybody who dies in Christ, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then he sees a man appearing on a white cloud um, who gives two commands. Um, um, one to an angel to use his sickle and gather the earth, and the second, so the angel swung his sickle in the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God, and the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a hundred than a lot. Um, it's at this point that the seven bowls are released, and um, the judgment comes over the harlot, and she's defeated, um, and that that will get us closer to the end, but um, to that um, point when um, Babylon is defeated, and there's this great celebration in heaven for having defeated Babylon. Can we go back to 13, the two beasts? Who are the two beasts? And how are we to understand this moment when the beast is described this way? He had exercised all the authority of the first beast. This is the first, the second. Um, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. This is the one given authority by Satan. Um, its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works mortal wounds. It, it works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. By the sight which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell in the earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to that image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even um, speak to cause those who would not worship. <coughs> At the very end when this war occurs, this is in 20... 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called in all the birds that fly and they're called a feast, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains, couldn't be more gory, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the riders, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against the army, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the work of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake. They're finally defeated. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophets. They're finally thrown into the fire. Um, who are these beasts? Because in one sense they define, they, they set limits, they give a real image of what goes on in all these 
final calamities. Um, You're talking the, the seven beasts? No, the two beasts, Mark, that I just read in 13, the, the one that comes out of the sea that was given authority by the dragon. Okay, okay. okay. Remember, it had seven heads and ten diadems. So, yeah. what? Are, how are we to understand these two beasts, and all that all that happens because of them? This is sort of defining because it's at this point that we're reaching the war in heaven, where um, the forces of heaven are going to go against the forces of Babylon and defeat them. Christ is going to overthrow everything. The beasts are going to be overthrown. The danger is going to be thrown into the pit for a thousand years. Who are these two beasts? Well, I mean, you know, in the catechism, what? I know the second one is a false prophet, and the first one is just some ruler. Whoever you know has dominion over what you know, whatever the great ruler may or may not be. Yeah, it was always attributed to Nero because that, that all this was written around that time when all the bad things were happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, my assumption, and then, and I believe me, I don't read too much into any of this. It is what it is, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but is that there will be some sort of ruler that will try, you know take over the world, whatever, you know, and that that will be some sort of evil person doing evil things, and then after him comes the false prophet, and then as a proverbial saying goes, all hell breaks loose. Let me, let me do that, I mean, to go along, some of you may disagree with this, but if, if entertain this for a minute, if this is final ends and all of history unfolding, so you can find illustrations of this in the past, what happened with the Nero persecutions that, you know, currently that I mean it couldn't refer to them can anybody make sense of these two beasts in light of what's going on in our world today just to expand the meaning <clears throat> if it's final ends and it's pointing ahead remember it's 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 got Christ victorious God mm -hmm. is one that's clear that's not in doubt but here's the, but the nature of the battle is described, and the two beasts have a major role to play um, in this battle. They'll, they'll be defeated. Um, but let me just read the lines again, just to see if, if anything rings a bell here. The first one comes out of the sea with ten horns and seven in. Why ten horns? Why seven heads? Um, blaspheming, um, he had different animals mixed into himself. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. So the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like this beast? Who can fight against it? A war goes on. I'm, I'm saying this. I mean, I, I'm not going to take a millennial stand here. I, I don't know where the thousand years is. I don't know. You know, I'm not going to. That's all beyond me. But I'm just reading this to understand as something given from final ends. The second beast is not out of the sea. It came out of the earth. It had two horns like a, la like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
It exercises all the authority of the first beast, so it takes its authority from it. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth. And by the signs which it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. All of those, by the way, are present tense. It deceives. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding, it's asking us to understand, not just passively pass by it. There's something really important here. Doc, you have any herb? No, you... And remember, after the victory and the seven, uh, the seven bulls are released and the scarlet, the woman, the harlot, um, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads, ten horns. The woman was arrayed, golden cup, Babylon, the great mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and of the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Um, The angel says, Why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and that of the beast with seven heads and ten hordes that carries her. The beast that you saw was... Listen to this. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills. It goes on describing. As for the beast that was and is not, keeps repeating it. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to perdition. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast, These are of one mind, give over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of Lords, it goes on. Who are these beasts? Do they not apply to our time? Is this strictly of the past? If this is an unfolding of history, it should apply to us as well as it did Troy, Babylon, Jerusalem, Rome. And Rome here, I think, is the great harlot, the way she's described. But... Who are these two beasts? Barbara, do you have any thoughts? I'm really trying to follow. I've been confused since the beginning, and so I'm learning not. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'd like to contribute, but I don't have anything right now. Fred, what do you, what are you, I, I know you've done a lot of work on this. What do you, what are your thoughts on the two beasts? Well, for me, the the first beast is Satan himself. It, it talks about wounded but returned, and to me, if you, if you kind of look at you know Michael defeated the devil in the original encounter, but he didn't kill him. He just sent him to hell. So to me, the the, the first beast and 
kind of supported by Ignatius, but you know, you, you can read a thousand different interpretations on this. But to me, that makes sense. And the second beast, the beast of the land, are the followers of Satan on earth, the false prophets, um, you know, the, 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 the versions that follow Satan, the the those that would would cause the destruction of of man uh, through the works of of Satan. Um, but anyway, that, that from from what I've read and and tried to ascertain that that's what makes the most sense to me. Fred, what do you do with this? Um, the beast comes out of the sea. It describes it, and then it says, to it the dragon gave his power. If the beast is Satan, who's the dragon? Because it's from the dragon that the beast gets its power. The dragon is Satan. Um, and the beast is the Antichrist. You, you know, it, it's... <laughs> You, you could you could argue that the you could argue that the dragon is Satan, and and the the beast of the sea is the Antichrist. But I never I never really quite figured who that was. I mean, if you and it could be going back to the past, present, and future thing. Yeah, it could be whoever, whenever, right? I mean, and. In, in the days in the 70 to 90 AD, it could be Nero, and I, the, and, and there, was, there was actually a, a ruler, a Roman emperor after him that was even worse than Nero. Uh, Gaia, I think, maybe. Uh, don't, 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 remember that? don't recall his, his name for sure. Yeah. But he actually was worse than Nero in the persecution of the Christians and whatever. So... In, in their time, it could be it could be them. Um, in my father's time, it could be Hitler and all of his cronies. In our time, it could be Putin and the ruler of uh, South Korea. Us, I mean, you can go North Korea or wherever you want. North South America, America, wherever you want to pick. Right. To me, it, I, I really believe that the book was written not. You know, and I and I like I think we we talked about this before. There's a lot of different schools about Revelation, but the one that I I tend to align myself to more than anything else is that it's a past, present, future perspective, and that's the one that makes the most sense. Yep. Because yep. you know, yep. it it has to be the Bible has to be a book for all of us, all times too. Yeah, people live then, but you know, for the people who live now. Yep. For the yep. people who live yep. after us until Christ comes again. Yep. And so I, I can see where, where, the, if the dragon is Satan, then, then maybe the 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 beast of the sea is the Antichrist. You know, you pick him, and then the the third, the beast of the earth, is all of those people who follow the Antichrist in whatever time frame you want to pick. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, sorry, I'll sorry. be the first to admit, you know, I'm I'm like everybody else. I'm just trying to put all the pieces together. But that's... Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. I heard a guy give a talk about it a long time ago that it's anything that... that yes, the devil. And I mean, there's the final lands, right? Devil, God. Okay, that, that that's given. But the quote-unquote antichrist, right, doesn't necessarily have to be a person. 
It's anything that takes us away from God. So if you look at consumerism or any of the isms that really affect culture and take us away from God, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. Yes. And I thought that was an interesting take. Don't know if it's right or true, but I thought it was interesting. No, I think it is, Mark, but I, 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 I mean... The trouble with that is that it just leaves us anomalous, but I think it's true in, at that level of abstraction. Be, but the, I think the point of this is that it can be specified, you know, Hitler or Nero or... Um, but Fred, there's always another bad guy, right? That, that's the point. Here, let me, let me, Fred, I, to pick up, I think your second reading is more faithful to the text than your first and let me, let me give you my take on this, because I think you're, what you did with the second is you took care of the dragon, whereas in the first you made the first be Satan. It doesn't make sense of it if you do. I think the, the dragon is Satan. I mean, that's fairly clear throughout the book. That's an image of him, the, a fallen angel. It seems to me the first beast, um, if I can put it the way both you and Mark are putting it, it's, um, it's, the, it's the powers of the world that follow him. And give me a minute to try to flesh this out because there's something really important going on here. It's the worldly powers um, that, that whether they know it or not are following Satan and in some sense following evil. It could be, there could be a consumerist aspect to it as, as Mark is saying. Um, but um, they take their authority from him and the sea is indefinite which suggests always ongoing because you know it can be one person one age it can be another it can be one political it can be Rome it can be Babylon but the whole point is that they take authority from Satan not Christ so you get all these kingdoms with kings or leaders who rule with that influence the second piece it seems to me I mean and I think Mark or I would certainly agree with you Mark on this that that um, they're the ones who are prophetic, who take the power, and now hold on to this, because I, I, and if, if you could, even if you disagree, if you could hold off for a minute, hold on to this for a minute, because it seems to me there's a great relevance to our time right now. If you take the second ones as prophetic, they're following the first one, but they're, they have the power to encourage people to witness to that first one, so it says, it works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven, that's what Elijah did. That's what the prophets did. They brought fire. They brought rain down. They, they performed miracles. But in the, in the case of the second beast, it's always making people follow the first one because the first one gets wounded. Now my question is, what are the simil here, truly, what are the similarities between these two beasts and Christ? If, if the dragon is the devil, and the first beast are the worldly powers. You can call them the Antichrist powers. I'd, I'd call them the worldly powers that are aligned for whatever reasons. The second are those people who look to worldly things prophetically and profess it and encourage people to follow it. And they have the, they have the power to point to the first one to a wound. That's exactly what the disciples did looking at Christ. He's got these wounds. Everything that's described about that second group is a parody of Christ and the prophets. So what he gives us in the first beast and the second beast are parodies of the kingdom. Now hold on, just let me 
flesh this out for a second. Is there anything going on in the world today that wants to make the kingdom of heaven here on earth and use worldly powers to do that? Because if there are, they perfectly align themselves with the first beast and the second. Those people who, are, who have the political power to do these things and those people who are prophetic, who make these arguments to convince people that the best thing they should do is follow these worldly powers. Is there anything? <laughs> yeah. Are you just? No, I'm just here. Describing her. Did you hear? Did you hear Suzanne? No. Does everybody hear my question? Yeah. Doc, go ahead. I would say AOC. Um, Can you go on? <laughs> I mean, she She's wants too to stupid to follow. Wait, wait, wait. No, well, no, you can go on, Mark. She, don't, don't, just be careful. Right now, be real. She has an enormous following, and she's spokesman for more than her following. But anyway, Doc, can and you she just... She wants to make... She wants to make heaven on earth. She wants to make everybody happy, everybody get medical care, everybody get free education. She wants to make a utopia, and she's using all of her considerable powers um, they are considerable to convince everybody else to go along and she can play to wounds the woundedness of yeah but she's one of, she's one of a thousand people yeah and I'm not denying that mark I all I want we're just picking out I, I can name lots of others um, the other thing to think about right here um, think about all the people who are following marks because Mark's whole philosophy, you read him, is to make a kingdom on earth. We're going to have all these battles. People are going to get wounded. But if we fight through and get rid of these um, owners of, of the, the capitalists who own this thing, so that all of this wealth is shared in common, we will create a painless, happy world. That's the main line of thinking at universities today, politically. Um, and it's and it's and it's um, what's it's its heritage is not recent. I mean, I remember I I didn't have these thoughts then. I wasn't reading Revelation. I am now, but I can remember um, priests preaching liberation theology who were really espousing Marx in theological schools, and that influences. And God, Mark, would you I, Mark, would you just show some restraint for a minute here, and and just for a minute. Take seriously, because I'm really saying this really seriously, Mark. This is Revelation. It's talking about end times. It's talking about the presence of evil and the fact that some people have this extraordinary power to influence others to follow this first beast. And that dynamic is not a small one. And we can, we can point back to Nero. We can point back to others. My question here was, is that happening today? Can we see it? If, if what we've been saying, I'm, I mean... I'm Fred, I'm certainly with you on this, that I think it speaks to all time. Can we bring those final ends down to see actual threats the way John did, that there's a spiritual war going on in our world, and those people who, don't, who do not believe in God, who deny Christ, are going to see things in a very different way from somebody who's a Christian. Christians will pay for this. They will suffer. But the, the real question for me right now is, how many Christians don't see this for what it is? If they read the book of Revelation and took a look at the way John is describing these passages and these two beasts, what would they see? Mark, now, if you... 
we don't know when it's going to happen, the end time. So to sit there and claim to see or that we should see bad things happening. If you read history, history's full of bad things. It's a, it's, history's violent, and it's horrible, and a lot of times. And this, no, this, this is no different than any other time. There's bad people doing bad things. There's good people trying to do good things. That's, that is what it is. Um, That's true. The one thing that it, it teaches us, that at the end of times, the second coming, there's going to be no doubt. Not going to be like you woke up, woke up from a nap and go, I missed it. No. So, you know, I mean, yes, there's bad things happening. Yes, there are people doing exactly what you're saying. And they're evil and they are horrible. And it'll never work. And that's kind of how I look at it. It'll happen. And we don't know the time or the date. So for me to speculate any more than that, I will be wrong. So I'm wrong enough already. I don't need to be wrong anymore. Let me try to let me goes back to Sorry. the and I think they call it the a lot of times it's called the Olivet prophecy. Mm-hmm. But if you if you go back to Christ last week, you know he gets he gets all of his apostles on the side of Mount Olive, and he looks down on Jerusalem and he tells them he starts it off with, you know, they're talking about how great the the temple looks. And Christ tells them that soon it will be destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah. And it'll be troubled. Yeah. And he goes on to give them the most depressing <laughs> view of the future that you could possibly grasp. And I can I can only imagine how they must have how they must have felt. But John was there. And I believe that the revelation links back to that prophecy. And I agree with Suzanne. AOC certainly falls into that category, but yep. I think you could argue that that you know, for the most part, the whole progressive party mm-hmm. falls into that category because yes, yeah. yes. Think it, CRT, uh, transgender, yes, uh, abortion, all, yes, all of they it. they are fundamentally against all of the principles that America stands for. Yep. And that my father fought for in the Philippines in World War II. Yep. I think, you know, if we don't deal with that in November, um, you know, we're we're in trouble. I I really believe that. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that that Christ said and that all of it prophecy was, you know, all these things are going to happen, but they're not the end of times. So I I think he was trying to. To, to get us prepared for the fact that, you know, we're going to go through a lot of tribulations, but, you know, only the Father knows, to, to speak to Mark's yeah. comments. Yeah. I, I don't know whether this is it or not, but I, I know that November is a really critical time. Yeah, no, I, I think... Of Americans yeah. who believe in what the country was originally designed to be. Yeah. Um, we've had too many talks for you to know that I, I mean, there's... We're in complete agreement, and I think most of us here are. I, I, I've got to hold myself to this, um, but I couldn't agree more with you. The whole progressive, I would like to put it in this terms to make it universal so that it covers whatever individuals we name. AOC is a good one, but you can name lots. Because she, she's, she is so focused, so powerful in her rhetoric to captivate, and, and she is captivating. People follow her, so 
I don't want to minimize this. I, what I want to do is try to give it its full force. I just want to repeat these things for everybody to hold on for a minute. The dragon gives this authority to the first beast from the sea. It's wounded. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Think about the political powers that are arraigned and wounded and recover. If your view is not of final things, but of earthly things, of temporal things, or political things, you're going to look to the world to recover. Babylon, Jerusalem, America, you can go on and on. Europe, England. But the point I want to make is that first beast received its authority from the dragon. I, 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 I don't have any doubts about it myself. That dragon is Satan. The first beast is an image of the worldly powers that take its authority because they want to make their kingdom it. The second beast is not from the sea, it's from the land. It takes its power from that, and it performs prophetic powers. The point that I want to stress here is if you look at all the characteristics that are described, they are parodies, reversal, reverse images of Christ. Making fire come down, um, it, the, the prophets, the prophetic figures, the second beast, show images of the wounds to appeal to people. Um, the, the image of the beast to be slain, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and to be marked on the right. That is, people who are convinced, this, this Fred, I, I don't want to make this political, but I, want to, I don't want to lose an opening here. If, if Christians, if Catholics simply pass this off and say, oh, you know, it's the same always, if people do not have arguments, if they do, if they, and the, and the, the caution here constantly in the Bible from, from John is, let he who hears, let he who has wisdom see. Lots of people are not going to see this. Pope, I mean, one of the reasons I'm doing um, Fide Ratio and Pope Benedict's Regensburg is because both of those popes were making it clear the Catholic Church has lost its way. It needs to be educated. It needs to be, it needs to recover a philosophy. It needs to use reason better than it is. The Catholic Church or the Christians are being defeated on the streets. If people do not learn to read better and make better arguments, we're not going to win that election. And all it's going to show is what it's describing here with these two beasts is going to carry on. Doesn't these John, two beasts are not small figures in this reading. Sorry, Doug. Doesn't John say repeatedly through Revelation that all of these awful things happened, people died, catastrophes happened, and people still went on. They yep. didn't repent. They didn't give up their evil ways. They yep. didn't see it. Yep. Let's go to the end to finish this quickly. I'm sorry that it's late. After all of this, in the appearance of this new city, remember, set the city against the worldly cities, Jerusalem, Babylon, Rome, choose it. All these cities which have as their end this completeness, this attempt to bring the kingdom down here on earth, and all the violence that that will cause, every attempt to create a utopian world is inherently violent. It's presuming to take the place of God. It cannot be done. We stand here, I mean, if, if you're with Augustine or Thomas, we're pilgrims on a journey. This is not our home. The people who want that kind of power are assuming the place of God. And I, and I, I don't want to say this in any triumphal way. What I'm saying is I want to be as clear as I can here because we've got a fight on our hands. If we don't understand it better than we do, we will not be able to make a good defense. We will be helpless when we need to call on reason to answer this.
the new city comes into being and then it ends. This is the end of Revelation 22. Um, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord. There's no need for sacrifices. What he's showing is, this is, the, this is the temple at the end of times. There's no temple. There's no altar. There's no sacrifices. God's won. God is not going to be defeated. Christ, Christ already won that battle. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day. Think about the different kind of political regime John's describing here. It's not regimes who are competing for, each, for power over each other, trying to conquer one regime over another. Its gates shall never be shut by day. There shall be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean shall enter it. Nobody will go into heaven sinless. We got that from Dante. Purgatory is there to help us do what we didn't do in this life, the things we denied or didn't want to pick up. But nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And here's the end. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Remember, the whole movement of the Bible is from a garden. <coughs> it was not our end. It goes from a garden to the new Jerusalem, a city where multiple peoples will be gathered together under God, under Christ. That's the movement of history. There shall be no more anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the land shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And I, they're not going to be... It's everything... Remember when Dante, as we approached, he and Beatrice approached Christ, he was seeing Christ everywhere. Faces, Benedicts, Marys, the, the, the veil of Veronica, everything was showing images of Christ. So it's not something printed in our head, it's revealing that we're all made in the image of God. As we get better, if we become the person we were made to be, we will be who we are. Each of us is different, but somehow we will reflect our Creator. And night shall be no more, they need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign for... So this is the hopeful note on which Revelation ends, that Fred was talking about. But it ends on this note, the angel says, here's an angel again, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. This revel, remember, St. Thomas, the absolute essential need of revelation, God gave us the Bible to help us to our final end, because our natural reason was insufficient. We needed help. And this is the last book of the Bible. Um, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. That's why the millennials give such importance to identifying the thousand-year reign. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down. To worship the angel says, don't do that. Your servant, stand up. 
He said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, this book, for the time is near. This is what the reason he's not sealed it up. So this goes to the point, is this Bible speaking to us now, or is it just speaking about Nero and the persecutions then? If it's end times, it speaks to all times. It spoke to people 100 years ago. It spoke to people 500 years ago. It's speaking to people today. Can we see it? For the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. So it's Christ speaking through the angel. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That can be now. I mean, to, to struggle to live within the city while all of this is going on outside. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning light. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who is thirsty, come, let him who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears this work, it's an admonition, Plagues will come if they don't take it seriously. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of the saints. Amen. That's not closing. What are we to take away from this ending? Doc, what do you, can you, what, what are we to take away? <coughs> that it's like Mark said, the end is, this is not the end. Um, or at least it's not being told this is the end. Um, and let life go on. People who are evil still do evil. People who are righteous still be right, holy. Um, if that's all true, why write the book? Because it's a cautionary. Um, and so hopefully the evildoers will turn around. Hopefully the righteous will still do what's right. Um, but it's a cautionary tale, and Christ is saying, I'm here, I've always been here, um, I always will be here, and let everyone who and he's already understands, won. He's, yes, already, he's already won, and everyone who understands this, and who wants me, let them come. Any last thoughts, you guys? Barbara, I'd love to hear because I know. I, by the way, just for I, this is a terribly complicated work, and I I know I've pushed through hard on it. I'm sorry for that, but well, I, I do have a comment. Um, when we're talking about um, the second beast, it occurs to me where I'm at. Um, I have the New Jerusalem Bible, so my wording is a little different. Um, so we have thirteen, sixteen. It compelled everyone, small and great alike, rich and poor, slave and citizen, to be branded on the right hand or on the forehead and made it illegal for anyone to buy or sell anything unless he had been branded with the name of the beast or with the number of its name. That reminds me of 
cancel culture. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad you said that. Good, flesh that out, can you a little bit? Because I, I think I mean this is one of the things I, that everybody would take this revelation to our time so that we could see more clearly what's because we don't. You know, wait. I wanted to say this is being certain, Barb, but give me just sixty seconds here. We live in a scientific worldview that looks at everything defined by matter. So the universe goes on forever. That's all there is. I mean, that's generally the scientific view. There's nothing outside of it. We're being given a view here of final things and being asked to see our world today in light of those final things. How well do we see it? Now, you just made, a, I think, a really... Can you flesh that out some? Why do you say that? Well, if you are not liberal and if you don't believe in all the things that everybody who is liberal believes in, you're not paid attention to. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, if you're yeah. in business, you get canceled. Nobody can, you can't even advertise on regular channels. If, if you aren't part of the group, your news, what's important isn't, isn't broadcast. So we definitely have to change something because goodness is not being broadcast. Only bad stuff is. Boy, you are so right on. I'm so glad. I mean, I'm so glad you could specify it concretely like that because it's a wonderful example. It so concretely illustrates, you know, that second beast and what's going on. Anybody else? Mark, Fred, any? I got one thing. Yeah. And you, as you were reading just a moment ago, and you were talking about end times, and, and it reminded me, the time when I was very young altar boy and there was some fiery Irish priest who was visiting and this is back in the globe a long time ago and he gave one of those good fire and brimstone speeches and he was talking about everybody was talking about the end of the world right and it was one of those times something was right. going on back then where right. oh my god it's the end right. Of the world. right right and he goes you know when the world ends he goes the day I die he goes because after that it doesn't matter for me he goes everything needs to happen as you know, when I die and I stand before God, now I'm not saying Revelation and end times and all, I'm not going to go any, into that, but I thought it was interesting because the end of times is the day we die. Because after that, it doesn't matter for us. For everybody else, yes, they got their lives, they got, you know, whatever. But for us, it's that day. And maybe that's the day we have to make sure that we're ready in all the trials and tribulations and everything you see that we need to be able to fight as best we can while we're here yeah so yep. that's all i got the, the only thing to add to that is you know when we die that's it it's the whole question then is what will we carry into the next life because of what we've done here and you know whether because life doesn't just stop with our death it does go on that that's why some of the works that we've read or even the passage that i quoted this morning or earlier at the be in the classroom elliot the dead are tongued with fire there's a lot to learn from the dead and and it's interesting to go back to scriptural passages and hear that you know particularly that um, Lazarus passage. But anyway, Fred, well, yes, go ahead. I I feel obligated to say this because this may be our last session, but for me, chapter twenty-two is Boethius at its best. <laughs> I couldn't I mean, agree more. It, you go look ahead. Around today, and there's so much that you could be depressed about. Yeah, I mean. I, I, even on Fox News, I mean, I, I, I get up in the morning and I have yep. to read it, but I, I, I hate to sometimes yeah, yeah. because there's just so much bad news out there. But to me, chapter 22 of Revelation is maybe the best chapter ever written. 
And I think when when I when I when I read Boethius for the first time, uh, it 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 brought all that into perspective for me. And it's it's Christ telling us, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and you just got to stay the course. Yeah. And it's hard. Um, I know it was hard for my parents who lived through World War II. I'm, I'm sure it was hard for their parents, and it's hard for me, and I, I worry about my kids and my grandkids. But in the yep. end, it all comes down to the fact that chapter 22, <laughs> you know, that, that in the end, good will prevail over evil, and you just got to hang in there. Yeah. I it's it's I'm I'm laughing, Fred, because um, it's just funny to the like mindedness here. All the way through Revelation, I kept thinking of Boethius constantly, end times, full time. It's one of the reasons I tried to put that image I out to you a few minutes ago. To the modern materialist, and that was remember one of Chesterton's grave concerns, the the monist, the modern who defines life purely in terms of matter because matter doesn't explain itself. To the modern materialist, if, he, if, he, if we don't do a better job of reason to show that that guy on rational terms, that he's, he's taking a position that doesn't make sense just in terms of experience, in terms of proof, evident, you know, all, all that Chesterton argued. If the world is nothing but matter, there's nothing out there. That's all there, there's nothing. This is, the physical world is it. If you read the, the works that we've been reading, and Boethius is probably the best example, there's nothing outside of God. There's no evil outside of him. Evil doesn't, because if it existed co-eternally co with him, there'd be no reason not to choose it. They're eternal. Even as a, evil is a privation. Any other philosophical argument is truncated. It doesn't make sense. Evil is a turning away from God. If, if you remember Dante's image as he approached the prima mobile and, and the Imperium, he saw that all of creation was like a tree whose roots were in heaven, in God's mind. What exists outside of God? All of the souls in hell exist. They are in being. They don't cease to exist. They're created. They have, they have being. They participate in being. The, the horrible truth about their lives is they, they live in such misery because they've turned away from being itself. So if we don't do a better job rationally of showing people that the positions they're taking do not make sense, not in terms of just a black-white, if you don't have faith, this is it. I mean, there's lots of arguments to be marshaled here. Boethius gave, what I, I'm so in agreement with you, Fred, Boethius gave one of the most complete arguments we will ever hear. God made the universe, explain how it got here. People, people today will not be able to do that. He gave every argument, rational argument. Contingent things do not explain themselves. A car going into a tree. What caused the car to do that? I mean, every contingent thing has a prior contingent. They're all accidents. No contingent thing can give a final explanation. The Big Bang is not an explanation because it's an accident itself. That needs to be said. That doesn't explain anything. And if you look at the scientists struggling with proteins and the probability of a protein coming into existence, I mean, it, it is the most unlikely, improbable, unbelievable thing, and yet people believe in it. There's only, there's only this world and a God, and 
and we've got to do a better job of of explaining the ramifications of looking at one belief or another. And I, I found Revelation amazing because it, it gives us a vision of end times. I thought the treatment of the beast was profound because if you look at them, I, 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 I don't think the first beast is Satan. The, the dragon is Satan. That first beast is an image of worldly powers align. It's like what you get in Fellowship of the Rings. Worldly powers. And the second are those people who have particularly powerful gifts in convincing people about the importance of that first one. And I, um, Suzanne and I have talked about this. We've talked about AOC and you know some of the other progressives who, who Marx, the source of it is Marx, who, who, who presents an argument claiming that if we only get rid of these class distinctions, and everybody will be equal, we will have a heaven on earth. So it's these these people who who intellectually make the argument that if we only do these sorts of things, we will have heaven here. And over and over and over and over again, we see the ruin and the destruction that follows from those visions. That argument has got to be made uh, because people who don't believe in God are, are not going to stand on something else. I mean, St. Thomas said, the church says, this is our church, the Pope say, when you're arguing with somebody, you've got to find some ground that you share with that person. Otherwise, you're going to be spitting past each other. That's, that's not a discussion. You've got to find some ground you share and go back to that and discuss. You've got to be able to make good arguments without blowing up or dismissing them. It seems to me that's, just, that's such an important task. And for me, it's, I mean, the immediate importance of it is what happens in November. I mean, you know, I share your concerns, but there's a there's a greater importance. It's what we're doing with our own lives, how we're responding to the this worldview that we live in that's so utopian and and violent. It it presents itself as being peace. I'm so glad, Barbara, for your comments. So glad. That whole view presents itself as being compassionate and tolerant. It is so intolerant and so in a, in a hidden way, violent. Absolutely violent. So, I'm so glad you offered that example because I think it was right on. Okay. Um, I will get a hold of you guys. Um, if you don't have anything to do for a month, read Charles Dick. Mark, this is an assignment for you. It's a penance. You read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> no, no. See, actually, I was thinking. What? If Dante would have written it today, Jane Austen would have been in one of the levels of hell. And they would have all been reading it. God, that charitable heart right of yours. Next to Faulkner. What, 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 did, what to do with that charitable, that charitable mind and heart of yours? God, it, it, it undoes me at times. I will get back to you guys. Um, read Dickens' Great Expectations. It's, it's, a, it's really a story about I, I hate giving things away. At its root is a profound disillusionment. You come to a moment and you look back and see it's not the way I thought it was. It's it's an extraordinarily mature work. Um, so anyway, I'll get back to you in a month and if anybody wants to tackle those, um, we'll get together and if not, we will plan a dinner at our house. Okay? Good night, everyone. Good night. God bless. It's been a great seven years. Boy, do you believe it, Fred? God, I can't.
Thank you for all you've done, you guys. Good night. Good night. Good night.